We welcome you to Tuesday People. I'm your host, Mitch Album. I am the author of the book, Tuesdays with Maury, upon which this podcast is inspired. It was, in fact, 25 years ago that I sat alongside my old college professor, Maury Schwartz, while he was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease, and learned the most important lessons of my life. It was a last class in what's important in life once you really know you're going to die. Maury taught it from experience. And we have a wonderful opportunity to look back on it now for several reasons. Number one, this actually marks, for Lisa Goich and I, my co-host and producer, Lisa, good to have you alongside as always. Hello, Mitch. And you know this is a special day because uh, this is technically our one-year anniversary of the program. But date-wise, it's a little skewed because it came sort of before the election, but we didn't think it was appropriate to do a a uh, anniversary show right with the election hanging over us. Uh, but now that that is behind us, we thought, A, we could celebrate the one-year anniversary of this podcast, and B, it is actually the 25-year anniversary of Maury's passing. Maury died on November 4th of 1995, and that was last week. Uh, and we thought, well, what better way to sort of mark both of those milestones than to look back on how all of this happened, even before I have ever set foot inside Maury's home in West Newton, Massachusetts, even before I ever was reunited with him through the television set, because the way that that happened was the Nightline program hosted by Ted Koppel, which back in, I believe it was March of uh, 1995, happened to begin a program like this. Just who is Maury Schwartz? And why, by the end of the night, are so many of you going to care about him? I happen to be sitting in my home in Michigan, some seven, eight hundred miles away, watching Nightline, and my jaw dropped because there was a thin, sickly, white-haired version of my old college professor, my beloved college professor, Maury Schwartz, talking about what it was like to die with Ted Koppel on Nightline. And that inspired me to make one phone call, which I thought would be the extent of it, which inspired me to make one visit, which I thought would be the extent of it, which inspired me to continue to stay the next Tuesday, the next Tuesday, and all the Tuesdays that Maury had left in his life, and ultimately led to that little book, Tuesdays with Maury, which has led all the way up to this podcast. We are so happy to have with us Richard Harris, who was the producer for Ted Koppel of Nightline way back then in 1995 and who actually, in his own way, spotted the potential for the program even before Maury was a guest. And we're so happy to have Richard Harris join us. Richard, how are you? I'm good, Max. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have you here. So am I right in remembering this, that it began with a newspaper article that you happened to peruse? Tell us you know, what your job was back in 1995 and how this funneled through it. Well, I was the senior producer, uh, one of several senior producers on the broadcast, and Ted Koppel was very smart about a lot of things. But one of the things he was very smart about was not having Nightline become a New York-Washington program. He wanted everybody on the staff to read their hometown papers. My hometown paper was the Boston Globe. I grew up in the Boston area. And there's actually 
an antecedent to this. If you go back a year or so before this, so maybe early 90s, Ted would give me a ride home uh, many nights. Uh, I happened to live right on the way, when he, and he could just drop me, and it was very convenient. And so one night in the early 90s, we get on the topic of death of all things. Ted had spent his first 13 years in England. It was only after his family moved to America that he realized there really was a very stark difference between the two countries. Back in England, you know, people talked openly about death, but in America, death was still pretty much in the shadows, whispered about. When I was growing up, people didn't even use the word cancer. They euphemistically called it the C word. Mm. And, and Ted said, I've always wanted to do a nightline about that kind of cultural contrast. Why is death a taboo in some countries and you talk openly in others? But he never could quite find the right way to do it. So fast forward a couple of years, and one morning I'm thumbing through the Boston Globe in the Washington Bureau of ABC News, and I come across... This headline, A Professor's Final Course, His Own Death. And I don't think it immediately connected with that conversation I had with Ted in the car, but as I read through the article, and it was a profile of Maury Schwartz, the sociology professor from Brandeis, who was dying of ALS. He had already had a living funeral. He had been diagnosed the summer before, so the summer of 94, and I think he had been given about 16 months to live, and eight months had already gone by. And I'm reading the article, and I'm saying to myself, there's something that Ted talked to me about that he might be interested in this. And I didn't remember the conversation exactly, but I knew we had talked about death, so I just go into his office and I said, Ted, you really need to read this. He did, and he said, well, why don't you get Maury on the phone and see if he'd be willing to talk. And I did, and he picked up the phone, and I really liked him right away because he was so different than anybody else you would call to be on the program. Most of the people would say, how quickly can I get to the studio? And Maury was almost the exact opposite. He had barely heard of Nightline or Ted, was not a television watcher. And so I had to explain a little bit about why we were interested in this. And, and then I started to remember the conversation about uh, uh, that we had on the, in the car about death as a taboo, which, as you know, Mitch, is, was one of the hallmarks of, his, uh, of Maury's conversation. Right. He thought he thought that uh, America was just stuck on the fact that they wouldn't talk about death, and um, so he went up to uh, Ted went up to uh, West Newton and sat down with Maury. And Maury, of course, being the person he was, wasn't so willing to suddenly be, you know, submitting to an interview, he wanted to interview Ted first, almost like an audition before right. he would be interviewed. And and he, he 
kind of said to Ted, well, you're kind of a narcissist. And Ted kind of laughed and said, I'm too ugly to be a narcissist. And and from that point on, they really bonded. I mean, they, they really trusted one another. And I think that was part of the reason why Maury and Ted just clicked and, and ended up doing three interviews. But so so the, I, I don't yeah. know. We, we, you're racing through a lot of ground there. Yep, let yep. me let me uh, let me go back on some of this because sure. I'm curious. And you and I have talked many, many times. We've been many places together. There's still yeah. things I haven't asked you. So when you had your initial preview call, shall we say, with mm-hmm. Maury and yep. he said, all right, I'd be up for it. Yep. You then went back to Ted and said, here's what I think. Was there any hesitation on Ted's part? Did, did, did he say, uh, well, I don't know. Do you think this is going to work? We have to go all the way up to Boston? Well, well you know, I, I don't well, imagine he, he just he raced out the door. He was wasn't going to come to the studio, given right. that, you know, he was in the condition he was in. But you didn't do uh, that a lot, did you? Go out of the studio no. to go conduct interviews? That was no, fairly unusual. No, right? I, we, we did occasionally, if it was a very high-ranking person, you know, whether it was the President of the United States or somebody else, you know, you, you certainly wouldn't do that by remote. But most, right. of, the, most of the interviews were um, uh, in the studio, or they, they were remote where, where Ted was in Washington and the guest was wherever right. they were. Right. So going to Boston was a big deal to begin with. And you went there. And I, of course, you know, I know more. Yeah, now, house. I didn't go. Interestingly, uh, we we have a we had a very uh, talented producer by the name of Dan Morris, right. who was very thoughtful. And we thought he would be just the person to produce this. So he went up with Ted and and you know it again it was one of these situations where uh Maury's wife Charlotte who of course you met and know well she was not really game for this at all and i think she retreated to a back bedroom and yeah. wanted no part of it yeah. and you know the idea of a big camera crew and all the machinery and 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 Ted Koppel, the big star, coming into their house. That was, you know, not necessarily the kind of lifestyle that Maury had. This was a very different thing. That's but right. again, you know better than I that part of Maury's mission in the final year, months of his life was to spread the word about how to live as you die. And I think he understood that a national television audience was a platform a sociology professor at Brandeis would normally not get. And he wanted to use this because at some point, I think there was some question about whether we as Nightline were using Maury. And then Maury said, no, I'm using them them too. Well, I had that discussion with Maury, uh, because especially before the the uh, the third one, when when uh, you guys came back for the last time, because uh, first you came, so the audience should understand there was the the initial one, which I think was in March. Am I correct? Yes. Remember that. Then the second one, I think, was maybe in May. Uh, I want to think it was right around then. And then the third one was. Late. It was September, or you know. Yeah, it was either September or October. Or early October. It was not not that far from from when, from he, when passed he passed away. And yeah. I, you know, and so I would 
I had been visiting with Maury every Tuesday uh, by that point regularly, and and I felt it was a little ghoulish because uh, he would say, well, sometimes they would call and say, how are you doing, Maury? He said, but I think that what they're really saying is, is it, you know, are you close to the end yet? You know, and, and that's when I said to him, I feel like maybe, you know, they're using you a little bit. They're not going to come until you're really close to dying. And he said, it's all right. He said, they're using me. I'm using them. I'm using them to get out my message. And he was not shy about that message. It's a beautiful little moment. We'll play this clip here from that first show where he wanted to make sure that something was okay to say on television, but then he just plowed ahead anyhow. What does that mean when you say your hands are going? I won't be able to use them in the short while. Things are very heavy to pick up. You used a cruder example when we were in your bedroom before. Should I say it on TV? Go ahead and say it on TV, because in many respects, I think it brings it home far more than everything else you've been okay. talking about. Okay, I'll say it on TV then. Somebody's going to have to wipe my ass. I remember talking to Maury about that, because, of course, I remember seeing it. And uh, I thought, as someone who had had him as a professor and all that, that was just... He knew he was going to say it, and he was going to say it anyhow, whether he thought it was okay for TV or not. I wonder, because this thing was taped, it wasn't live, when you came back with the tapes, when Dan and uh, and Ted came back and you guys were putting the first show together, was there any, ever a thought about, ah, that's a little gross, maybe we shouldn't put that in? No, just the opposite. I think I think Ted always pushed for authenticity, and part of the th- one of the themes that was running through the three interviews, apart from the personal story of what was happening to Maury, which was interesting and devastating, was the story of ALS. And I think Ted, what Ted wanted to do is to show how ALS is just this horrific, devastating disease that that just destroys the body but keeps the mind intact. And I think one of the ways that you can demonstrate that is the loss of your ability to control your own bodily functions and, right. and, and other things. And so I think he, Ted, really believed that this was important. Was there always a plan to come back for a second time? No, uh, it was, that's one of those things where I think because Ted and Maury really bonded very early and, and they kind of trusted and understood one another, Ted came back, got on the phone with Rune Arledge and said, boy, that really went well, that first interview, I think you're going to really um, uh, like uh, this this fellow who um, is is really opening up his life to the world, and and then when Ted said to him, I think we may do several more interviews. Rune Arledge kind of echoed what you were hearing from your publishers or potential publishers when you were trying to sell uh, the idea of the Maury, yeah. You know that that it's too much of a downer that people won't, don't want to hear about death. And I think one of the things that everybody learned from this experience is that the universality of death, everybody lives, everybody dies. You can't say that about every issue the media deals with. But on this particular issue, as Ted has said, and the reason why he chose this 
particular broadcast to end his 25-year Nightline series. Instead of doing a highlight show, he went back to Maury because he said, look, a hundred years from now, this is going to be as relevant as it was in 1995. Mm. Did uh, So Rune Arledge was like, squeamish about the idea, but he didn't try to stop it. He trusted you and Ted that if this is what you wanted to do, you wanted it would work. And then I imagine there was it was highly rated to boot, which doesn't hurt when you're in the television oh, yes, business, yes. right? And it ended up being one of the most requested DVDs or videos. Uh, I can't remember what the format was back then, maybe VHS, uh, and then became DVD. And it, it's, it kind of mirrored the success that you enjoyed with your book that ended up being a, a just what the biggest selling memoir in the history of publishing. And, yeah. and, and I think again, we can all say, you know, Maury was a big part of the success of that because he somehow found a way to communicate these difficult issues in a way that people could appreciate and understand. But it also was about, the universality of, of what he was going through. Yeah. What do you think Ted learned from Maury, if anything? Well, I, I think he learned a lot from him, but I, I think one, one of the biggest things was that, you know, in television, we sometimes got too obsessed with the big names, the exclusives, and... What, with Maury Schwartz, what we learned, and I can't tell you that Ted feels exactly like this, but I, I suspect he does, that sometimes there are people you've never heard of before who have a story to tell that is worth telling. And I think that what, what came out of this experience for me as somebody who went to South Africa to do an interview with Nelson Mandela to produce Ted's interview with Nelson Mandela or went to Jerusalem where we had for the first time a historic town meeting between Palestinians and Israelis. While all that was a wonderful part of my career, I still come back to when people ask me, so what what issue or what show or what person meant the most to you. And it has to be Maury, only because here we are 25 years later, and we're having this conversation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I got to know Ted Koppel through this process and was quite moved, I think, as Maury was, to find the depth of humanity that he had that I think it's just everybody's sort of natural fallback posture to assume that TV people are always a little bit phony and their caring is a little bit phony and th they're actors of a certain sort. You have to be when you go on camera because you, you, if, you're, if you're in a bad mood, you can't come on and host a nightline program and say, I'm in a bad mood, so I'm just going to do a bad mood nightline program. So there's a little bit of acting all the time, even, even with journalism. But it quickly was obvious to me that Ted really cared about Maury and cared about him more and more as, as the visits went on. Do you recall after the third visit when I think that Ted knew that he was not going to see Maury again, what he said to him, what his reaction was, what he said to you perhaps after, after it was over when he came back to, to Washington? Well, 
you know, it, 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 it's, it's a, it was a very personal to him. Um, it, while they only knew each other for eight months, they clearly had a deeper relationship than the time in which they knew each other. And, right. and um, of course, we all went to the memorial service at Brandeis. Uh, Ted spoke, but only on the condition that it would not be publicly announced. He did not want this to become right. a uh, a public spectacle. He really wanted to make sure that the family was front and center, not him. I sat next to him at that. Yeah. We both spoke, and uh, I remember that and been really admiring that because that was that was a condition upon which he said, I'll speak. Please don't tell anybody I'm going to speak. And, uh, you know, he choked up. A little, uh, you know, and we all think of Ted Koppel as a little more stoic than, uh, you know, uh, than, than emotional, but he choked up. And, uh, you know, we've had many conversations since, and he, he really was quite moved by it. You mentioned a little bit before about sort of the, the extent in which people have come to embrace this over the years. It's now 25 years past. I did not know, for example, that you could request Nightline episodes until... I started getting those kinds of requests myself to pass on to you. Uh, and then schools and universities, funeral directors and, and the like. Give us a little bit of the, of, the, of the scope of how those three shows over the course of eight months after Maury passed away became a bit of a signature piece for Nightline, even after Nightline was off the air. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh it's it's kind of breathtaking when you think about uh how one man who decides to talk about his bad lot in life of having this dreaded disease how th- those conversations transcended some of the exclusive stories that we might have had uh, that that for a day or two you know that they were picked up in the papers and you made all kinds of news but it didn't last and there was something about these conversations we heard from people around the globe you know uh you know that that uh, through the internet and and other means people really connected to this story and it it, it, it you know it, it is in some ways the oldest story in the world about how a negative can be turned into a positive um, I mean here was a guy who had a, a death sentence really when he was diagnosed with ALS there was no cure there still is not today and here he is still a teacher the play is still being staged the play that's based on your book is still being staged all over the world in places like china and and remote areas of the world and it has a universality and a universal language that allows people in different cultures to experience it it really is remarkable i, I you know i thought and see how remarkable it is in my own life and how many people I have met and who have been touched by Tuesdays with Maury through the publishing of the book and that story. 
but I often forget that there's this whole other parallel uh, massive-sized reaction to the three Nightline programs that you get regular requests, you get regular letters and regular appreciation and regular viewings of those programs, just as I get people reading the book and passing it on and sharing with other people. You had mentioned to me uh, before we started the program that there were some emails, some correspondences that you've gotten from some young people, which always pleases me because I know how much it would please Maury to know that he was teaching. You know, he always wanted on his tombstone a teacher to the end. He could have modified that to say a teacher beyond the end because he literally continued to teach after he was gone. And I always tell people, you know, Maury Schwartz never saw a single word of Tuesdays with Maury. He never read one word of it. I never had a paragraph of it written while he was alive, nothing. And yet it has served to educate so many people around the world, and he continues to be their professor. But share with us, if you will, uh, you know, a, 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 a glimpse of those emails that you're talking to me about. Yeah, it was uh, out of the blue a few weeks ago. I got an email from a high school English teacher in York County, Pennsylvania, and their students were reading um, Tuesdays with Maury, and I think he was really hoping to get you or Ted on a Zoom session and had to settle for me. He had he had read a piece that I had written about this five years ago around the 20th anniversary for the Boston Globe about this whole Maury phenomenon and asked me to be on the Zoom session, and I was, and it went very well. The kids were engaged and, and um, asked good questions. And then afterwards, a second teacher uh, from that school sent me some questions and comments from her students that were meant for you and asked me to pass it along. And one in particular just took my breath away, uh, and I wanted to read it uh, for your listeners so people have an understanding of how this particular book, you wouldn't necessarily think a dying old man would be a topic that would register with young people. But when you listen to this note, you can begin to understand why. The student writes, Tuesdays with Maury has left a bigger print on me than what I initially thought. I have a daily struggle with mental health. Some days it's better than others, but sometimes I don't even want to get out of bed. I think that from the book, it's both Mitch and Maury that have made me realize that I can still be more than what I think I deserve. Since I moved back, it's been really hard. I don't want to talk to people because I feel out of place and isolated. Even just having book discussions over Tuesdays with Maury allows me to talk and connect with people around me in ways I otherwise wouldn't have. Mitch helped me because I see little bits of myself through his struggles. In the beginning of the book, when Mitch first graduated, he seemed to be this beaming light of optimism in the world where he sought out to be a musician. When that didn't work out, I think he lost a little bit of himself. I know what it's like to feel like everything in life is going well with these big plans for the future, and then nothing works out. When Maury came along, again, he helped Mitch realize that there is more to life than just the middle. There is also the end. From reading this book, I realized that I've never truly lived my life. 
And that helps me get out of bed. I've never truly lived because I haven't experienced what life is actually like. I haven't seen my little brother go off to kindergarten or high school. I haven't seen my mom get old. I haven't seen myself turn 16. I don't know my purpose in the world yet. Maury has been an inspiration during my dark times because he was struggling too. But even when his condition got worse every day, he just fought harder and harder. I inspire to be an inspiration to others and help them the way that Maury has helped me. I'm not sure how I'll do that yet, but I want to be able to fully live my life without regrets when it's my time. All I know is that now is not my time. This book was truly inspirational, and I never thought of it as just an English assignment, because to me it was and always will be much more than that. <laughs> that was a high school English honors student. Wow. wow. Yeah. Well, I can see the English honors part, uh, but the depth of feeling and understanding for uh, someone that young is just remarkable. And uh, she used so many little phrases about, you know, living fully and things like that, that, that meant so much to Maury in terms of what a, what a complete life really means. And I just hope that that note is infused with light and darkness. You know, there's, there's, yeah. a, lot of, there's a lot of hope and there's, there's some sadness there, and I don't know the root of it. But I, I hope that the former obliterates the latter and that she is able to you know, take the stuff from Maury and, and, and the lessons and, and clearly what's already in her own mind and put whatever sadnesses and depressions that she's faced in such a young life into their perspective. You know, Maury would often say to me when I would ask him about youth and, and the envy of youth, you know, we had a whole chapter on it. And mm -hmm. he said, uh, and I said to him, don't, don't you ever envy being young, you know, being young and healthy. He said, you forget I work with the young. He said, I see how miserable youth can be. <laughs> he said, I hear everybody, my boyfriend broke up with me. I'm not getting the grades I want. Right. They're so unhappy. And so sometimes, you know, the prism through which you view the world at those young ages, high school and college, can make things seem like they're just awful. And if you can just hang on to a perspective until you, you swing on the vine and get out of that jungle, you know, and you're 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 safely out of the the horrors of high school and the backstabbings and the social medias and the bullyings and the things like that, then you'll be okay. And uh, I, I I hope that for her, and I hope to develop perhaps a correspondence with her if that's possible, because um, that is one special person. But that's one just one example of uh, of how the teaching goes on, and and it's the last sentence of the book. And I thought a long time about how to end Tuesdays with Maury. Not so much how to begin it. I had many false starts uh, beginning the book. I don't know if I ever told you this, Richard, but uh, when I sat down to write it, I had never written a book like this. I'd only written sports. Right. Uh, I'd written two sports books, and I had no idea how you begin a book like this. And I. I just went, I must have written 50 starts and then and thrown them out. And I would uh, talk to my editor, and he would say, you know, well, what's going on? What's the struggle? And I say, you know, I, I just, I'm not, I got to get them right from the start. I got to get readers from the start. I don't know how to do it. I don't know if I should begin at that. 
at the end and then go backwards, begin at the middle, begin when I first see Maury again, begin at, and and and, uh, and he said, "Why are you torturing yourself?" I said, "Well, because you know they won't read if they. It's like a newspaper column. If they don't read the you know first paragraph, they're not going to read." He says, "Listen, you need to relax a little bit." He said, "This is a book. They'll give you." 10 pages okay <laughs> relax <laughs> they'll give you 10 pages before they give up on the book it doesn't have to be the perfect first words so i sort of exhaled and i just said okay I mean, let me rethink this and what i did was i got a i got a box of old papers out of my attic from when i was in college and of course so many of them i had written for maury because i took eight or nine classes with him including my honors thesis and so I got these papers out, and every one of those papers read, if you remember, Richard and Lisa, you're probably old enough to remember this, too. They taught us how to write term papers. And, you know, the purpose of this term paper will be right. this. I will right. prove this by doing this and this. Next, I will do this and this. And I just had this idea, and looking one over, maybe I should begin this like a term paper, you know, and just write the declarative page of what this is going to be. And so I, I sat down, and after really what had been a couple months of total false starts, I wrote the first page of Tuesdays with Maury in probably 10 minutes. And I just wrote, you know, the last class of my old professor's life took place in a study where he could look at it, a pink hibiscus plant shed its leaves, and, and on and on. Like, the class was, the subject of the class was the meaning of life. It was taught by experience. There were no books required, but you sometimes had to give the professor a kiss. You know, I just laid it out like a syllabus, uh, like, or like the opening page of a term paper. And I remember I finished it, and I sent it right to my publisher. It was a page and a half. And I said, how about this as an opening? And he sent me back. Uh, in those days, we didn't do email. You know, you got a fax. And a fax came through the machine. And I remember it went like that machine. And it came back. It had one word on it. Wow. And I said, okay, I found the start to the book. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, it is funny, and I'm sure this happens to you all the time, that particular events can trigger lines from Maury. So, for instance, this past weekend when we heard about Alex Trebek's passing, there was an interview that aired over the weekend after his passing in which he was talking about pancreatic cancer and how it's after after the treatments are no longer working, uh, I have to be prepared to die, basically. And it immediately triggered the line from Maury about don't let go too soon, but don't hang on too long. Right. I mean, there is something about those aphorisms that Maury had that, that just stay with you for some reason. Yeah. Well, I guess because, as you said, universal wisdom is the most embraceable kind. And you can translate that sentence that you just said into a thousand languages and it's still going to make sense. You know, don't hang on too long, don't let go too soon. And so many other things, death ends a life but not a relationship and and uh, giving is living and the many, many other pieces of wisdom that Maury shared with us. But it all, for me, my piece of it for the book that became a conduit for so many other people and for the people who became aware of Maury who never have read Tuesdays with Maury, Maybe not even know that a book exists, but saw him three times on your program that you produced uh, and with Ted Koppel. 
I want to thank you, Richard, for on this anniversary of Maury's passing, 25 years, for helping to bring my, my old professor's uh, wisdom, kindness, sweetness, and, and unique form of optimism to the world. If you had not been reading your hometown paper, uh, that might never have happened. If you had not gone to Ted and said, hey, how about this? It might never have happened. It certainly, and if you hadn't I, been I, watching I Nightline yeah, that night, yeah. maybe this would never have happened. Right, and we wouldn't be doing this. Uh, yeah, yeah, there so, are a lot of what-ifs. A lot of what-ifs, but they Things all do happen together. for a reason. I think so. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you. Richard Harris joining us today. I can't think of a better way, Lisa, to, uh, to celebrate the uh, one-year anniversary of this program, which is tied to that, which is tied to that. You know, yeah. it's like uh, the end of um, A River Runs Through It, where he writes so eloquently, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, uh, uh, in, in the end, you know, uh, there are all these rivers that come together, you know, all the streams of the world, and, all that, and, and, and it comes together in a life form, and a river runs through the middle of it. And, and this is sort of the, the, the river that connects all of us here who yeah. knew Maury, liked Maury, were inspired by Maury. Uh, read things that Maury said. And so, um, wherever you are, Maury, we particularly dedicate this show to you. And uh, remember that night when uh, you were introduced to the world and reintroduced to me on Nightline. Until we see you again, which will be seven days from now, uh, on behalf of Lisa Goich and all of our wonderful audience at WeTuesdayPeople.com. I am Mitch Album saying we will see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at WeTuesdayPeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday People. <laughs>